Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please uh, remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 this morning in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's blessing now in the preaching of His Word. Oh, Father, how we do pray that you would, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your Word, that it would not just, uh, that it would not return to you void. We are thankful for your Word, which teaches us that it doesn't, that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. Lord, we we know that that the ministry of the Word is an aroma of life, to life for those who are being saved and and an aroma of death to death uh, for those who are perishing. We do pray that by your spirit that there would be, uh, Lord, that there would be many who would would hear and find life, that you would grant us the ears to hear, O Lord, the the ears to hear and to be humbled, and uh, Lord, that we would see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who truly does satisfy the soul. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, one of the uh, one quote from Augustine that I have used quite a number of times and will use again here today is this very famous one that, that is basically the beginning of his confessions, which is, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are, rest- are restless until they find rest in you. The idea is very simple. The point is that, the, that God is the true longing of the soul and that the, the soul that has not found God will always find itself to be dissatisfied. You can go from pleasure to pleasure. You can go from thing to thing. You think of, of how Solomon describes this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, you know, I had every opportunity. I had all this wisdom. I had all this ability to go from thing to thing. And I, and I tried it, and it didn't work. 
Everything appears to be vanity, and the reason is because our hearts are always restless until they find rest in God, and the reason for that is because that God is the one who has made us, and He has made us for Himself. If you want to find rest for your soul, it can only come when you find the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that this is uh, the, the, the description of of the, the unbeliever in this regard, those who uh, seek to satisfy their souls with other things. It is something that we see in every age, every culture, uh, every kind, every, every person. You know, I don't even need to, to know who you are, but if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I can, I can speak about these true things that apply to everybody, that, that you can go from satisfaction to satisfaction, but ultimately you will not be satisfied until you find God. And on the other hand, you'll know if you've met any sort of Christian, uh, anyone who is truly casting themselves upon Christ, you'll know that many times Christians face great difficulties, that they often do not have the same capacity to find these sort of outward enjoyments, that, that those are often ripped from them. And yet the Christian is often satisfied that that it's often the Christian in such circumstances who finds the peace that passes understanding. And the reason for this is because Christ is the one who satisfies the soul. Christ is the one who satisfies the soul. And this is in fact a thing that is being taught in this miracle. You'll remember that we are in this, this section in the book of Matthew where Matthew is, is building towards this climatic confession of faith that Peter is going to make. In chapter 16, Peter is going to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And everything from the, the end of chapter 13, the, the very last passage, all the way to that confession of faith, is meant to be, um, you, you could call it Matthew's last appeal, the, the, the things that he wants to, to communicate, to show you that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And one of the things that he is doing with regard to the record of this miracle is he is showing that in, when God's people are in, a, in, are in deserted places, when they are in great need, when it seems like they have nothing, that it is Christ who is able to satisfy his people in that situation. Christ is the one who satisfies the soul. And if you make the good confession of faith, by implication, if you make the good confession of faith as Peter has made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you will find that Christ satisfies your soul as well. That is the purpose of this passage. Now, uh, this passage follows a very um, simple structure. There is basically the setting uh, this is, you know, this is basically just uh, just a miracle that is recorded, the feeding of the 5,000, very, very common, very, very well-known miracle, uh, common in the sense of being a, a well-known story, uh, a, a very familiar a miracle story. Um, and it's the, the structure of it is very simple. There is the setting where Jesus and the crowds are introduced. Then there's the problem, which is that they don't have any bread. And then there is the miracle that is given in verses 18 through 21. We're going to basically just follow that structure as we go uh, through the text this morning. And we're going to spend most of our time on the actual miracle and particularly on what the miracle teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are a number of things that are, that are done in this miracle that show connections to other parts of Scripture and to show that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of certain sorts of expectations that were already set up in the Old Testament, which lead us to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So that'll be the, the plan for the sermon, and what we're, uh, again, aiming to show is that Christ is the one who satisfies. Now, uh, in terms of the setting, this comes in verses 13 and 14, 
and there is, uh, you know, particularly with, with verse 13, we have this, this uh, brief introduction. Uh, Jesus hears of it, so this is connecting us back to the previous passage. He departs from there and uh, by boat and goes to a deserted place by himself. The, the implication is that he's going there to pray. The multitudes hear of it and they go from their cities and they try to find Jesus on foot. Now, um, if you were to ask, you know, it's important to ask, what is it that Jesus heard? The answer is that he heard the, the news of John the Baptist's death, which had just been recorded, particularly in verses uh, 3 through 12. So, so Jesus hears that John has died, and then he goes by himself to pray. Now, uh, sometimes um, there, is, there are questions asked with regard to the chronology of verses really 1 through 13. How does the chronology work? Uh, the reason for the question is because if you remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14, that verses 3 through 12 is something of a flashback. So that there is a, uh, there is a, verses 1 and 2, there is this question about Jesus that Herod is receiving. And then in verses 3 through 12, we, we understand the reason why the question is being asked, that John is raised from the dead, that's what Herod believes, is because John had previously killed him. Then, it, then the question then becomes is, well, verse 13 seems to be picking up on the end of verse 12, so then how does it relate to verses 1 and 2? And I think the answer is actually fairly simple, and it's basically just that even though verse 13 follows verse 12 chronologically, uh, we're to understand that verses 1 and 2, even though the question is being asked, is basically happening at, it's all happening at about the same time. So the idea is that uh, Herod puts John the Baptist to death, and Jesus hears of it and is now doing various miracles, and while that's happening, Herod is asking the questions about who Jesus is. That's basically what is happening. That's how we are to understand uh, what is happening in verse 13 with the, with the chronology as well. Now then in verse 14, we have the, the further setting for the miracle where uh, Jesus sees the great multitude. He is moved with compassion for them and heals their sick. Now, it's very easy to read this verse and to skim by it and to think, you know, this is just a very simple part of Matthew constructing the setting in terms of the structure that is what he's doing, but it's very easy to um, simply look past the description of Christ's amazing kindness in this verse. It's something that uh, we see in our culture right now, um, that the kindness of the world is clearly diminishing. Everyone is looking out for themselves. Very few truly care for others. But you think about what is happening in verse 14. Christ has just heard that one of his great friends, someone who is in ministry even with him, someone that he's known from birth, who is even, even a, a relative of him in some way, that he's just heard that this person has died. The person who is called his own forerunner, the person whom he clearly loves very much. He has retreated in his sorrow to be by himself, to, to pray to God. He is now being interrupted by all of these crowds who basically just hear where he is and they're going to find him. Now, what, what would be the normal response of most people if, if you know, they're in this kind of sorrow? Most people would be annoyed. They'd be annoyed that they are, that they are being asked to do all these things for all these other people who, who cannot respect the fact that there is a real legitimate need to mourn over the loss of a friend who had just been executed in a brutal way. Others may say, you know, I have compassion on, the, on this crowd in some way, but I can't give of myself any further because I'm just in, in, in such a great distress over what has happened. 
and they would, they would, they would maybe refuse to serve in, in that regard. But think of what the Lord Jesus Christ does here. He has every reason to mourn. He, he is trying to get by himself. We're going to see even later on in Matthew 14. He goes back. His, his mourning is not done. He goes back and finds another time to, to go and to, to unburden himself with the Father in prayer. He, he, he still is mourning, and yet in the midst of that mourning, even when he's interrupted, he's, his first thought is to have compassion on others. It's to have compassion on others. And brothers and sisters, that is the great kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of your Savior. There's many great qualities that we can think about with the Lord Jesus Christ, many reasons to follow him. But one of the, one of the great uh, basic fundamental things is that Christ is kind. He is kind. You, you never have to think if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in your distress and in your cares and your worries that, you know, that you're going to uh, put him off or that you know, he's, he's busy doing other things, uh, even in his humanity. Uh, even as, in, as far as he is human, he has kindness and compassion on others, even in the midst of his own personal hurt. If you come to him, that is the response you will always get from your Savior. That is the response you get from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the response that the crowd gets from him now, even in this very distressing situation. And so that ends up being the setting then. So Christ now is back with the crowds. Uh, in, at the end of verse 14, then we come to the very familiar story, uh, which I just want to summarize and bring out a few basic points here with regard to the problem. So evening comes, the, the disciples tell Jesus, you know, you need to release the crowds. They need to go get something to eat. They're in a deserted place. They're, they're in a, a place that's very desolate. And Jesus then tells the crowds, uh, tells the disciples that the crowds have no reason to leave. The disciples have to give them something to eat, verse 16. And then they tell Jesus that we only have five loaves and two fish. And uh, therefore, you know, obviously the, the point that they're making is, is that there's a, there's a great uh, insufficiency with regard uh, to, uh, to the, the things that they have. Um, the, the point is just very simple. You know, they, there's a lot of people. There's an overwhelming number of people. We have basically no food. So there's nothing then that we can do and you still need to release them. Now, it's significant, I, I think, that, um, that Christ and the crowds are described as being in a desolate or a deserted place. Um, the reason is because this, this immediately draws connections to the Israelites in the Old Testament, particularly their wanderings in the wilderness. Um, the idea is that uh, in some ways God's people are always in the wilderness and they're always in need of God. They're always in some sense uh, in need and their su supplies are insufficient. And there is always a need to know where am I to go, and the answer is always to God. Um, you'll you'll uh, remember that in John's account of the feeding of the five thousand in John chapter six, this is actually there's actually an explicit uh, connection that is made with the manna that was given from heaven. And you'll remember the context of that is again in, 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 in the desert. So the idea is that you know God's people are wandering in the desert, and uh, here then in, God's people are in the desert, so to speak. And what the people understand is is that. Uh, Christ is able to feed them in the desert just like Moses did. And the point that Jesus is making is that um, his, he can do even more than Moses because it wasn't actually Moses that gave them the bread. It was God that gave them the bread. But Christ is the one who in the place of God actually gives them uh, the bread. That's the point that, that Christ is making and therefore that he is himself uh, the bread of life. Now these things are left a little bit more implicit in Matthew's gospel. And yet I do think we are to, to, to see the connection that um, God's people being miraculously provided with food in the wilderness is meant to be a picture of what Moses himself did. And we'll, we'll come back to the significance of that uh, later on. Uh, this then leads to verses 18 to 21, the, the, the miracle itself. 
The, the miracle is recounted, uh, particularly in verses 18 and 19. So Christ tells them to bring him the food. Uh, he then commands the, the, the crowds to sit. He takes the bread, looks up to heaven, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples, the disciples and give it to the people. And then there is, uh, you know, an overwhelming amount of food. Now, um, it's important to note the significance of the fact that Christ is not the one that gives the bread to the people, but it's the disciples that give the bread to the people. And this is, ends up being, uh, really is very parallel to the ministry of the church in every age. Um, my job is not to make bread for you. I, I have no ability to do that. But I relay, I, I, I distribute the bread that is given to me. It is to say that the Word of God is the thing that is powerful, that actually gives the spiritual life to others. And I, I have no ability to make the Word of God on my own. I have no ability to, to have really any power with regard to the Word of God as I preach. But I'm, I am one who, is, who has said uh, that I will receive the gift as Christ has given it, and I will simply give it over to you, trusting that when I do that, there will be much left over and it will supply all the needs of God's people. There's something of a, of a parallel to this. Uh, Christ's disciples, they do, not, they do not have the ability to multiply the loaves and the fish, but they receive the multiplied loaves and fish and they give it uh, to the people. This is the reason why um, when you think of, of um, you know, a faithful ministry of someone within the church, anyone who is a faithful minister at all is never going to want and is going to immediately recognize the improper nature of being praised too much for the work of ministry. Because really, really, what, what is the disciple able to do? I mean, is the disciple really in this context to be praised so much for simply handing out bread that had been miraculously multiplied? Is the praise not more to go to the one who is actually multiplying the loaves? The answer is obviously yes, and, and therefore any, any minister, any, any pastor who is faithful is, wants the congregation to recognize that whatever benefit you've received is not because of me, but it is because of God. It's not because of him, it's because of God. If, if there is any benefit that's been given, it's because the word of God is mighty and the spirit of God is poured out. I don't pour out the spirit. I don't write the word of God. All I do is communicate the word of God and I pray that God would pour out the Spirit. And if that happens, then clearly praise is to be given to the God who wrote such amazing words and the God who pours out the Spirit in such great abundance. That is, that is 100% of the efficacy comes from God in that way. And that is what we are, are to recognize with regard uh, to this miracle. Uh, you'll notice as well that uh, the people eat, they're satisfied, verse 20, and then they, they take up 12 baskets full of leftovers. The number 12 is significant. It's, I think it's clearly meant to represent the Israel. The point is, is that the people of God basically have nothing on their own. They bring their nothing to Christ. Christ multiplies it. And there is enough left over for all of God's people. They, they themselves eat, they are satisfied, and even the leftovers are sufficient for all of God's people, 12 being related to the, the 12 tribes of Israel and therefore being representative of all of, of the people of God. Then we are told in verse 21 that those who ate of it were for 5,000 men. 
you'd assume that there were just as many women, and then there were also children uh, as well. So this is 5,000 adult males. So really, uh, clearly, then, this, uh, this miracle is, is amazing. Uh, nothing like this had ever happened before, and the only time it ever happens again is when Christ does basically the same thing as we will look at uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 15 in the weeks to come. Now, as, as I mentioned then, um, that, that's the miracle itself, but we are, we are meant to understand in this miracle that there are certain things that we are learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain things in this miracle that are meant to lead us to make the confession that Peter will make in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, the, so we, we need to ask ourselves then, what are in fact the lessons that we learn? What are the things that Jesus is showing about himself when he multiplies these loaves and fish? And the very first thing I think, I think that probably would have been the clearest and most obvious uh, to those who are witnessing this, is that there would have been an, an immediate connection with Elisha. So, so there would be a, a connection with Elisha. You remember that uh, Elisha he's, he's a, was a prophet to the northern kingdom predominantly, <coughs> and is connected with the ministry of Elijah. So Elijah and Elisha go together in First and Second Kings. Elijah appearing first and Elisha uh, next. They were confronting the ungodliness of the people in the northern kingdom, particularly even uh, Ahab. You remember the, the story Elijah is taken up into heaven at the beginning of 2 Kings. And Elisha goes with him and asks for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah to be placed upon him. And this was then given to him, which enabled Elisha to do a number of, of works and miracles that went beyond even those of, of Elijah. Now, there's a couple of important connections with Jesus. First, uh, many people already thought that Jesus was Elijah. Uh, you'll, you'll remember that this with regard to uh, Mark's account of, of uh, Herod's execution of John. There are some people who say he's John the Baptist. Some people say he's the prophet. Some people say various things. But it's important to note that one of the things that, that Herod's, um, Herod's servants are telling him is that, yeah, a lot of people say this Jesus is, is, is Elijah. A lot of people are saying that of him. In chapter 16, you know, when, when Christ is speaking to the, uh, to the disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? Some say Elijah. Others say a prophet. So there's already, there were already connections that people were making. They're, they're saying the kinds of works that this man is doing, they appear to be similar to the kinds of things that we read about in the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, this is even further significant because John is described actually as Elijah. John is positively identified as Elijah. And if John is identified as Elijah, and if Elijah went before Elisha, then we would say that there must be, there, it's not wrong to see that there is some connection between Elisha and, and Jesus. Uh, Elijah goes before Elisha, John goes before Jesus. There's some sort of connection there. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the connection then is further. If you were to ask, well, what are the, the exact things that Elisha did that would have uh, indicated that uh, Jesus is like Elisha in some way? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, we have another miraculous feeding that is recounted that Elisha performs. And so this, again, is the, is the connection. Uh, there, though, there were 20 loaves of bread that were used to feed 100 men. So you can see the vastly different numbers. Uh, 20 loaves of bread that are made to feed 500 men. The loaves clearly would have been smaller, else it wouldn't have been thought of to be a miracle. Uh, the, the point, though, is that the servants thought it was the servant at the time uh, in 2 Kings chapter 4, there was a servant there who thought it would be impossible for so little food to feed so many people. And the loaves were miraculously sufficient for so great a multitude as to cover uh, 100 men. Now, 
This, this miracle is clearly very similar, where you're meant to see the connection, and also obviously very different, insofar as five loaves and two fish are much less than 20, and insofar as 5,000 men is way more than 100. And the point then is, is to say that the miracle shows that Christ is like Elisha. He is, he is the one who follows the Elijah to come, but he is far, far better than Elisha. He is far, far better than Elisha. If it is the case that Elisha was able to do this because he received a double portion of the spirit of his master, then what has Christ received? Has he not received, as John says in John chapter 3, the spirit without measure? He has to be the one who received the spirit without measure. And what, what John tells us is that he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, the one who receives the spirit without measure, this is the Christ. This is the Christ. That is what we are meant to see. If, if someone could, could do so much more than what Elisha has done, then this has to be the one who is anointed with the Spirit. Therefore, he is the Christ. He is the Christ. That is the first thing that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ from this miracle. Now, the second thing is that Jesus, as I mentioned, alluded to earlier, Jesus is the one who gives the heavenly manna to his people in the wilderness. There is meant to be this connection. We've already noted, noted some of the connections between uh, Christ's miraculous feeding here and Moses' provision for the people of God in the wilderness. I mentioned that John highlights this explicitly, uh, that, uh, you know, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My father gave you the bread from heaven. And now I myself, he says in John chapter 6, I myself am the bread of heaven that has come down that gives life to all. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. One, it shows that, that Christ himself is this miraculously uh, given provision from God. He is, the, he is the bread from heaven. But also, it's important, to, <coughs> it's important because, brothers and sisters, as Christians, uh, we are always living in the wilderness. We are always in this position. We are always facing these sorts of difficulties. Remember what the, what the Apostle Peter says when he addresses the church. He's not addressing any particular sort of church that doesn't apply to others. He's addressing the church in general. And he says, to the elect exiles, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's what we are. That's what the church is in every age. We are elect. We are loved by God. And yet we are exiles. We have not yet reached our home. We are looking for the home that is to come. And therefore, therefore we always need to be thinking about as we go through the difficulties of this life, as we are in these deserted places, where, where are we to go to find our strength? Where are we to go to find our sustenance? When it looks like all we have is five loaves and two fish, the answer is we are to go to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides the true manna from heaven and whom, as he says of himself in John chapter 6, is in fact the bread of heaven that has come down, given for the life of the world. This is even the, 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 the situation of Psalm 23. You remember Psalm 23 verse 5. This, this, is, this, this, this you could say is the meaning of uh, what it means when the psalmist speaks of God preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. This is what every Christian knows of. When you're surrounded by difficulties on every side and th the, the situation may not even change, and yet there is still this table of communion, of sweet communion with God that sustains you through it all. There is a table that God has given in the presence of all of his enemies. And it is a banquet that Christ himself has set that we can know that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that yet Christ is with us. Christ is with us. And if we have communion with him, we have every reason to rejoice 
even as we go through every sort of difficulty. That's the second thing that we understand. Jesus is the bread from heaven. He's the, he's the, he's the, is the heavenly manna. He is the one who gives the heavenly manna to his people. Uh, the third thing that we note is that Jesus is the one who satisfies the soul with a heavenly banquet. Is what we see, we see particularly with verse uh, with Psalm 23. You could say it it, it fits with the 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 the, the uh, man in the wilderness theme, but also with the heavenly banquet. Um, you'll remember if you were with us for the the series in Proverbs 1 to 9. This is something we looked at that wisdom sets a feast. We looked at this recently, and that this is a theme that we see in the scriptures of salvation. That there is a banquet that has been set, and this and. Uh, those who come to Christ are those who partake of this heavenly banquet. And the, pur the purpose of the banquet is to say that it is the thing that satisfies the soul. You think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 55 where he exhorts uh, those who are thirsty to come to the waters, those who are hungry to come to buy and eat, to buy food without price, to uh, give up the, the food which will not satisfy the soul. Come get the thing that will actually satisfy you. The point is, is that if you turn to Christ, your soul will be satisfied. Uh, Christ speaks of this again in Matthew chapter 8 where he speaks of this banquet where there will be those who will come from the east, they'll come from the west, and they'll recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Uh, perhaps the, the clearest picture of this banquet is found in the Lord's Supper. And this is, this is a, another connection that we are, we are to make. Now, sometimes there is a debate about whether or not the Lord's Supper is in view. And uh, this is often comes from a desire from um, you know, Protestant interpretations to stay away from the Catholic interpretation. We really have no need to fear this. There's, there's no need for us to, to, to fear uh, uh, connections with the Lord's Supper. Um, the problem with the, the Catholic interpretation, at least as it's properly presented, is not that the Lord's Supper is recognized but rather that the Lord's Supper is explained as basically the termination and culmination of the meaning. The idea is that this is about the Lord's Supper and only about the Lord's Supper, and that's, that's it. But we're to recognize is that the Lord's Supper never terminates on itself because it's always pointing forward to a heavenly banquet. And so if, if there is something in this text that also points forward to that heavenly banquet, and the Lord's Supper also it, it does that as well, then it's natural for us to see that there's a connection between those two things. That we, we are, we are to, to receive the Lord's Supper and recognize that there is going to be another banquet that is the, the culmination of our salvation that, that will happen in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But that's also what we learn here, that as we're in the wilderness, as we're in the wilderness, we're to recognize that Christ is the one who multiplies the loaves as a foretaste of the banquet that we will receive and share with the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. Everything ultimately is pointing to that great banquet. And therefore, the last thing that we learn is uh, not just that Christ is the new Elisha and therefore is the Christ, the Son of the living God, not just that he is the new Moses who gives the, the manna to, to his people in the wilderness, not just that he is the one who sets the heavenly banquet, but we're also to understand that Christ himself is the bread of life. That it's not just that he doesn't give some other thing which satisfies the soul. We are to recognize that he is the one who satisfies the soul. Now, this is, this is left a little bit more implicit in Matthew's gospel, uh, but it's explicit in John's. It's explicit in John's, uh, in the way that John describes the feeding of the 5,000. Christ makes it very, very clear. I am the bread of heaven. Your fathers ate in the wilderness. And they were satisfied in some way, but they became hungry again. The true bread that comes from heaven is the life that, that I give to the world. And what Christ says is that I am, I am that bread. I am that bread. 
The point is to say is that, that this, this, this miracle is supposed to teach you who the Lord Jesus Christ is so that you can then take the next step and say that if Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then He is the only one that you need. He is the one that you need. He is the one who will, in fact, satisfy our soul. And therefore, what Augustine has said is true. Our hearts will always remain restless until they find rest in Christ, who is the true bread of life. Now, if, <coughs> if therefore, you are here, if you're living in a life of sin and you're not a Christian, this is an important thing to consider. Consider the meaninglessness of, of life in light of, of what has been put before you. Consider how little satisfaction, how I can know very little about you, and yet how little satisfaction the world actually gives you. You can go from this or that thing to this or that thing, and in the end, you will end up declaring the same thing that Solomon has said so many thousands of years ago. It is all vanity of vanities. It is vanity of vanities if you do not have God. Now ask yourself, ask yourself, how it is that even I can know that these things do not satisfy you? The answer is given is because uh, God has taught us in the Bible that he has made us for himself. And if you do not have God, you will not be satisfied. That's what it says in the scriptures. And I am merely relaying that message to you. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of the evils of his people, the evils of idolatry. And he describes it in this way in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've committed two evils. They have turned away from me the fountain of living water. So they did being we were using the metaphor of bread. Now we're using the metaphor of water. But the point is that bread satisfies, water satisfies. What he says is, my people have turned away from me the fountain of living water. And then they've hewn out cisterns for themselves that have holes in them. That they can't even hold water. They keep pouring the water into the cistern. And the water just keeps seeping out. And that is the picture of everyone who turns away from God. You can... You, you can, on the one hand, have an ever-flowing fountain of water that satisfies the soul and leads up to eternal life, where your soul will be satisfied even into eternity. And on the other hand, you can have a situation where you're trying to control every element of your life, and you're constantly pouring water into it, but yet you don't even realize that there are holes in it, and it's just seeping out. And it will never, no matter how fast you pour the water in, it will always remain empty. Those are the two evils that Jeremiah speaks of. And therefore, the message is this. Turn away from the broken cisterns. Turn away from the broken cisterns. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, if you are a Christian and going through a great difficulty, this is great hope for you. This message is great hope for you. He is the bread of heaven that has come down who can sustain the weary saints, his own weary saints in the wilderness. We're always in the wilderness. We always need the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ has promised to be with us. Uh, very often it is the case that Christians are tempted to go through the difficulties of this life by trying to suppress their feelings, try, trying to close themselves off from the situation, trying to get by by merely being distracted, when all the time there is a table that has been prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. Rather than trying to distract yourself or to suppress the thought of your problems, the thing to do is rather to understand that the solution has been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in fellowship with Him, in fellowship with Him, you can find the peace that passes understanding. In the wilderness, the way to make it past the wilderness is to actually be in communion 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the soul is satisfied in that way, the soul is also fortified to remain faithful through all the troubles of this life. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we are called to do. This is the great, this is the great promise that is given to us. This is why it is, uh, it's always a, it's, um, it's in very many ways a tragedy for Christians to go through difficulties uh, without making use of this great promise. There's the, the story of, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, of uh, those who are in Doubting Castle. And they're in Doubting Castle. They, they don't know how to get out. They're, they're thinking about suicide. And then they realize they're, they're, they're in a cage in Doubting Castle. And they don't realize that the key to get out was actually in their hearts the whole time the key of the promises of the Word of God. They simply take it out and then they leave. So often the, the problems that Christians find themselves in are, are just like that, where God has offered us, he's, he's offered us communion with Himself. And if we will but take advantage of that communion with Him to actually have table fellowship with Him in the presence of all of our enemies, that will be the thing that satisfies our souls to the point that we are able to get through the wilderness and remain faithful to Him and finally cross over the river of the Jordan into the promised land. May it be that God would grant you the grace to see that Christ is the one that satisfies and that he would in fact satisfy your souls. Let's pray. <coughs> oh Father, how we do thank you for your son. How we do thank you for your son. There is no one like him. Uh, Lord, the one who is the eternal son of God who has become man for us, the one who became even, even a lowly man by the standards of the world who, when judged by the flesh, was found to be wanting. But for those who have the eyes of faith, they have been able to make this great confession of faith that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has been vindicated before all by his resurrection from the dead, and who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and who will reign until every enemy is placed under his feet, with the last enemy to be defeated, being death itself. How would you thank you for him? And may it be, O Lord, that you would cause our hearts to, to melt in the contemplation of him and that by your spirit we would rejoice in him with joy unspeakable and full of glory as we, we await his return from heaven with all of his angels where he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body and where we will be brought in and rejoice with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. For Lord, we do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, 
this is a very dark place. Uh, there's a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.